0: In parenting, we're looking at how best to support the neurodivergent students. Catherine Burkett has a Master's in Educational Psychology. She has a special interest in resilience and is a certified neurosequential model of therapeutics practitioner. She runs neurodiversity workshops to support teachers as part of Life Education's Nurturing Healthy Minds series. Catherine says parents and caregivers of neurodivergent children can also benefit from understanding How their brains develop and influences uh, behaviour and influences on behaviour and decision making. She works with schools, primary to high schools, and has also done a project with police on better understanding uh, behaviour. Catherine, good morning. Good morning. So, what is the model, the neurosequential model of therapeutics, please to begin. Just help <laughs> great place big, me with great your big, um, research
1: uh, title. Um, actually, it was in the Listener there was an article about when Dr. Bruce Perry uh, visited New Zealand and spent time on the Maori and um, wanted to understand more about how we develop in a more biologically respectful way. Um, So the neurosequential model of therapeutics talks about how the brain develops sequentially, but actually what we understand is it develops from the bottom to the top, so connection, rhythm, routine is the most essential thing for brain development. So it's a very old sort of uh, understanding, but using new technology and understanding to Yeah, validate it. It's the reason why uh, parents rock babies. The rocking (laughs) motion, exactly. Every culture in the world uh, rocks at the same pace. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, tell me a little bit about more about your work with schools, then, Catherine. Yes, I work with schools. I work with all uh, a a variety of organisations, corporates. trying to help people understand that sequential development of the brain we put a lot of focus especially in our schooling space um, on the upper part of the brain the cortex the executive functioning part but actually if the lower part isn't organized and regulated then we're not getting anywhere so there's a lot of understanding um, bringing the neuroscience and the the biology and to understand that
0: concept. When we are talking about the neurodiverse child, uh, how do you approach your um, educating, I guess, of teachers and and others who might be working with that child?
1: Yeah, so it's it's the new thing I get asked everywhere about, neurodiversity. But Catherine, you've told us about these children, but what about neurodiverse children? And we sort of think they go into this different, um, completely different space. And what... I want to do with understanding this neuroscience around the brain is to understand that neurodiverse children are still, they're still kids and adults, neurodiverse adults, and our brain develops generalizing the same way. Just if you have a neurodiversity, and by the way, neurodiversity, the definition is not exact. Um, some people will say it's really just people on the autistic Asperger's spectrum. Then other people will say neurodiverse encapsulates every um, diagnosis. So just to be aware <laughs> there's a real divergent understanding. But really, if you're neurodiverse, it means your brain brings in information differently, filters it differently, and then uses it sort of differently. But it's still a brain um, that develops from the bottom to the top. So I want to take some of that scariness away, thinking that the only people that can work with neurodiverse children are those with these huge qualifications. Because, again, the most effective way of working with someone is, first of all, to create that connection, that, that, um, that sort of tribal uh, safety in that space. And you don't need high-end qualifications to
0: do that um, really well. What you do need, as you do with the teaching of any child, is the ability to assess and, and um, uh, react to their individual needs and their individual characteristics. And with the neurodivergent child, this can be um, extremely Different things. There may be a, a sensitivity in some instances we know to environmental stimuli that needs to be managed, right? Um, there can be any number of things, but the starting the principle is what? The same as any child. What is it that's happening here? What do I need to know about this particular child and how do I need to make the environment better for them?
1: Absolutely. And if we go back to one of the most original um, theories around child development, it's called serve and return. You can say it lots of ways, attachment theory, serve and return, dance of attunement. But I love the term serve and return because it's visual for me and I'm a very visual person. And so what we need to do is we need to sit in a space where the Person with the least power serves and we return. So, in that space, it would be the child um, serving and the teacher or teacher aid or the support person returning. And they watch how the young person serves and we. Uh, appropriately and proportionately return. And that creates a sense of safety. When baby peeped and said, I'm sort of hungry, we fed them. When they were smiling at us, we smiled at them. When they were sad, we sort of rocked them and hugged them. We returned what they were asking for most of the time, by the way. um, As a parent, I certainly didn't get it right all of the time, but most of the time. Now, what we need is we need to create spaces in our schools for that to happen. And if you have a neurodivergent child, that serve and return is going to take longer, and need more time. Does that make sense? Because there's more to learn about this child, so it's not different. It's just probably a longer, and um, yeah, taking that time over that serve and return
0: process. What are the um, what are the elements of of that? Uh... Is it necessarily done entirely alone? Does the relationship with parents, with family, with other caregivers play a, a really important role here? Or can nothing replace you working out your own individual interaction, understanding way of being with that child?
1: What I like to liken it to is if you've raised a baby, we know that a baby, first of all, needs quite a singular relationship a dyadic relationship so one on one and once that person's established quite a good safe relationship we want to bring other relationships in quite soon and if say i had a really good relationship you know my baby was good with me and you came round i wouldn't leave my baby with you for a day and say oh, i've going off to a course can you look after baby for a day we would slowly introduce you you would hold baby while i'm there you know all of that sort of stuff so what we can use is if the whānau is really connected and we've got really good relationships there, then we use them to transfer that relationship to the new person. Do you see? So we we can use lots of people when lots of people can be involved. Um, the issue is, is when that young person has quite high um, activation and... And um, we haven't really got too many people to pass that through from. We have to start from more of a scratch space, which takes a long time and a lot of energy. And what we're often not funded or um, given the time for with these young people is to appreciate how long it can take for that safe space, that sense of, that field sense of safety
0: to um, occur. Or indeed, for the literal physical space sometimes to be provided, as we there are stimulus issues, noise or or light sensitivities, to use just one um, one example. You mentioned the basics, the brain, all our brains regulating from the bottom up. You mentioned some of the basics. How how do they lend themselves to building these relationships? Um, Just. Whatever the amount of time the child needs, right? So you've talked about things like connection, routine, you mentioned rhythm. Mm. Um, and again, is it just ensuring that the, the patience is there to build those building blocks however long it takes? Is it might is it like with any child, with any number of issues going on, a child who's been through trauma, for example, uh, at a young age? Are the mm. basics the same? The perseverance needs to stay um, while they are achieved, yeah, and that recognition of the individual, as you've
1: already sort of said. So, if, what you can see is this relationship, this rhythm, this connection is really going to have to be produced out of an educational setting and the requirement of the education so and by the way I have a lot of um, my kairahi the um, teach raids and the support people who work within the classroom so we're not saying we have to take the kid out of the classroom but what we have to do is we have to allow this child to feel safe so allow that rhythm and that connection to happen and not push the education on yet and if we do that right within play, so often we're getting them out, playing games outside, doing music, doing drama, those sorts of spaces are where you're more likely to get those lower parts of the brain regulated and forming really positive connections, rather than saying you need to learn now, and once you learn you can go out and go for a walk, um, we'd go for a walk first if that was their thing, and then ex- and then ask if the brain's ready to learn, so yeah, it's it's the same for all of us, and, and my main expertise is in trauma. Um, that's where I've done most of my work with Dr. Bruce Perry in understanding, but obviously this neurodivergent space fits in that because understanding the brain is huge for any individual whose brain works differently.
0: What are you seeing in schools? I imagine there's a huge um, range again, a, a, a diversity in fact, uh, of... When it, when it comes to the structural setup that enables this, whether it's resourcing or whether it's just the way the classroom is able to function, um, because schools are by their nature systemic, mm. <laughs> and the system often, uh, very often, has um, been part of the problem for many kids. So what, what were your observations?
1: So I work in so many schools. Now, to be fair, most schools that ask me to come in are already on the journey of trying to understand. So, But you go in and some schools have just got this beautiful understanding that connection for Tonga is the most important thing we've got. Um, they create that space and you see incredible learning happening. Or I might go into a school where they're still very, like you said, systemic and being driven by the outcomes. Um, And unfortunately, you see it more likely in high schools because we've got to have those NCA outcomes. So what you can get is you get this feel when you go into schools, but the pressure on the outcomes is just absolutely extravagant now um you know when you think about even a generation or two ago if our kids were neurodivergent they potentially wouldn't have gone to school they would have left a little bit early maybe found another place for themselves to feel um more safe and secure now we require every child to be in class for long periods of time and we have modern learning environments where you've got so many kids in one space less structure so Some of the changes we're making are not good for our neurodivergent kids Um, but I see schools doing incredible, incredible work even like say some high schools doing incredible work because they are recognising the need for the lower brain connection stuff and then the education comes rather than being driven by these educational outcomes as the primary and only thing we're focusing on. Can you give an
0: example or two?
1: Of good practice. We've got Mm. actually a really beautiful um, project going in Porirua East. And uh, what we have is when we started with six schools, we asked the schools, who are the relationships that already exist in your schools? And five of our schools chose their teacher aides and one school chose their caretaker. And so what we're doing in that space is we are I then go in and I train these people and the whole school to understand the importance of the lower brain connection rhythm. And so there's two rules in this project. One, our crowd here, our navigators have to check in with these young people at least once a day. How they do it that is up to them because they already have that relational space with them. And the second is to create moments of tolerable stress, because this is the resilience building stuff. And they do it within play, they do it within connection, and we are Have now got twelve schools in the project, and it is being expanded because it's working. And um, Putitor College is doing an incredible job, um, absolutely, you know, engaging with this space with some really difficult kids. And we see if you do it right, if we take the time, have that patience, build those connections, then we get the learning outcomes. So we're we're seeing it um, up in Auckland. um, At the moment, yeah, the, um, out in the coast there's lots of um, really intentional practice going in there around trauma-informed
0: understanding, which helps with our neurodiverse students. The, the, the connection between home and school is perceived as being so vital uh, in any number of circumstances, but particularly where students have challenges. There, there needs to be in some ways um, a harmony between their uh, in environments. Mm-hmm. Um we see this often uh, in the cultural context, we see it in the context of children who uh, might have learning disabilities, um, and uh, I'm wondering also if it's a really important part of the, of the neurodiversity picture. Can you explain more about, I mean, do you work with parents as well as teachers in schools to get the whole the, harmony between everyone involved with the child? Yeah, so totally appreciate that. It is better if we have that harmony.
1: But we have, I've got so many cases where, for lots of reasons, we're not going to get that change shift in the um, home space. We can still make a change in the school. We've got a lot of um, wording. You sort of say, in school we do this, in this space we do this. So we sort of put that space around it. But one of the beautiful things, again, about this um, project in Purirua East is that um, the whānau will come in and they'll go, my kids have been talking about reading Green Brain, so I put the brain into a pretty simplistic um, form and we talk to the kids about their red brains, if they're activated, they can't use their green brains. And the whānau are coming in and saying to our he, by the way, not to the principal, not to the teachers, because they feel more comfortable with those relationships that are there with their kids and saying, what's this red green brain stuff or what are my kids doing or they're telling me that, they're telling about breathing, can I do this? So what we're getting is we're getting this um the feedback into the home and then coming in and asking questions or the young people teaching um, their their parents about the stuff so it's actually really exciting I do do um, parent presentations often a school will get me in to train the school teachers and then they'll come and do the parent presentation so that the language is the same and the understandings there um, but yeah it is fantastic to have that harmony between but it isn't actually essential we can make change with the young person
0: without it um, not Preferable, but possible. What is the role of stigma in making things far worse rather than better? And are you seeing improvements in that in some of the schools that you are working with? You mean like
1: stigma of a diagnosis, that sort of thing? Is that stigma what you
0: mean of a asking? diagnosis or, or uh, stigma of uh, a behaviour that? Is less about the child than an environment that doesn't work for the child, mm. but then becomes all oh, this behavioural problem. Um, could you speak to both?
1: Yeah, so, and that's one of the things, obviously, diagnoses are important for a certain um, level of understanding this young person, knowing that there's something that they process the world differently, but I also don't like diagnoses um, for exactly sort of what you're saying, that stigma. What we find is, especially with neurodiversity, but um, with all, all other things that you know impact the brain uh, processing, is that that young person genetically has a different way of processing the world in their brain. But that does that genetic doesn't make them overactivated, doesn't make them violent or abusive or anything like that. It's not in the genes it's not unchangeable and um, what has happened most likely for that young person is their journey through life has created more moments of stress and I often tell a you know bit of a funny story um, when I'm training and I say if my I've got two um, beautiful young children well they're not young they're older now but um, children and if I had parent if they'd been on the spectrum when I parented them I would have parented in a high octane noisy random way and if they had been neurodiverse I could have actually overactivated them do you see so but what we can do is we can help work on the overactivation we can help change that so the stigma sometimes says this person is neurodiverse angry um violent and and we think it goes together as a package but it doesn't we have to say i can help that person calm down their stress response We'll still have the neurodiverse traits. They'll still be that neurodiverse person, which in some ways is, you know, is fantastic. It can also make their life difficult, I know that, but we can change that. So the stigma can be really difficult because we put it all together. And then we don't change our behavior because we go, oh, they're just neurodiverse. Oh, that's them. I can't do anything. You can. You can do so much for these young people. And we can do it every day in everyday experiences So you're right, that label sometimes puts people their hands up and go, well, I can't do anything, they're neurodiverse. Actually, we can change a lot about our young people and our adults who are neurodiverse. Uh, Catherine Burkett, thank you.